I laughed at my daughter for not knowing which rap group Flava Flav was in. She just turned four. My best friend stopped inviting me to girls' night ever since I performed Bitches Ain't Shit at the karaoke bar. My sick wife asked for some juice. I brought her the DVD starring Omar Epps. I've been sleeping on the couch ever since. I need something that will cure my classic hip-hop deficiency syndrome. I need an escape from my adulthood coma. I need an outlet for my useless hip-hop trivia. That's That's why... I need Headspin. Headspin, Headspin, the first of its kind classic hip-hop trivia podcast, scientifically proven to turn every head into a hip-hop head. Come listen every week as two golden era gladiators battle it out to see who knows more about completely useless hip-hop trivia. The winner goes home with cold hard cash, while the loser has to spin the dreaded hip-hop wheel of consequences. Headspin really works! Hosted by the world-famous Magic Most of the Demigods crew, with special guest announcer, the legendary DJ cool. Headspin really works. Headspin is sure to make you binge more than Be Real Binge's bong ribs. Tune into Headspin launching Wednesday, June 30th on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and everywhere podcasts are available. We're on the side of the stage. There was a gate to get backstage. And me and Eric and Dan are like trying to get our parents in and go, no, no, they're, they're with us. That's our parents. Let them in. Let them in. And Beastie Boys tour manager walks up to Eric and he's all, get on fucking stage right now. And Eric goes, yo, man, I'm trying to get my mom's in right now. He's, and the stage manager for Beastie Boys goes, yo, fuck your moms and get on stage right now. Eric comes. Hey, here it comes. You're listening to Fresh Era, where we tell stories from the legends of the golden era of hip-hop. Each episode, we bring you stories from the pioneers themselves as we dive deep into their lives, their struggles, and what it was like to be a part of the most popular form of music before it was mainstream. I'm your host, Craig Smith. On today's episode, we take a trip into the life of DJ Lethal of the group House of Pain. If you're not familiar with House of Pain, you might know the name of one of their MCs, Everlast. If you're still in the dark, I'm sure you know their smash hit, Jump Around. This song is still one of hip-hop's most popular jams, and House of Pain, made up of Everlast, Danny Boy, and DJ Lethal, had an arsenal of other material that was guaranteed to turn any concert into a party like no other. Now, the story behind the creation of Jump Around and the forming of the group that made it is far different than any story we've covered so far. And as we follow the life of DJ Lethal, we'll go literally around the world. DJ Lethal was born Lior DeMont, literally in one of the furthest places from hip-hop, a small country called Latvia. At the time, in the 1970s, Latvia was a part of the Soviet Union, and with the Cold War still raging in the background, life in the USSR was isolated and extremely modest, to put it mildly. My pops used to bring me, like, little treats of bags of, like, tangerines and chocolate and just, like, simple stuff. Because back then, behind the Iron Curtain, you you had to stand in line for bread, you know what I mean? So, like tangerines and even like bananas were like exotics. And under communist rule, there weren't many options nor opportunities for people to live out their dreams. Back then, as soon as you turned 16, you went straight to the army. So he he went in the army and was the guitar player in the army band. My father, since he played guitar, he wanted to be a rock star in America. So that was the mission. But there was a much bigger hurdle. Rock and roll was outlawed. You couldn't play rock and roll. They had to make their own guitars. They would listen to shortwave radio and get BBC, you know, radio from the UK. Place Britain's premier top 20. And hear Led Zeppelin, Cream, 
you know, bands like that, Hendrix, and, and they would play that in Russia. So it was like literally rock behind the Iron Curtain before there was like rock in Russia. And his father wasn't the only musician in the family. My pops played guitar and sang, and my grandma played accordion. My aunt played piano, I think. They were in a band together. All his buddies from all his bands started leaving, and then he was like, yeah, we gotta go, we, you know, let's go. There was only a couple ways out, and we had to sneak out. And if you got caught, like, trying to get out, you would go to jail. We went to Vienna, Austria, and then through Vienna, Austria, that's how we got to Italy. And we had a visa through Israel. Their friend, like, one of the first ones that left, met him at the airport in New York and was like, listen. He gave them two choices. Stay in New York and just make it happen and for yourself. Or right now, you come with me, the Jewish community, you would get taken care of. They would give you a job, they'd give you an apartment, and you would have stability. Everything came down to this decision. After escaping the Russians, moving across the continent, and finally making it to New York City, his choices were to pursue his dream of becoming a rock star and risk facing all the uncertainty that would come with that, or go on to an Orthodox Jewish community that would have secured his family's stability, but would have also killed his chances of playing music to the masses. My dad was like, let's go. <laughs> Left the airport, and then my dad was playing in a restaurant two days later. First, we stayed at some friends' places, you know, and then we finally got off our feet. We got an apartment in Jersey City. So they were trying to bring in a bunch of Russian immigrants and all their Druze and, and take over. They were trying to gentrify Jersey City. And we finally got an apartment. And the whatever project, it was basically projects right across from the Twin Towers. That was my view every day walking to school. And since he was just a child from a foreign country, things were going to be difficult from the jump not just trying to get settled. I didn't speak English, so I learned how to speak English in a week. So my first words that I wrote down in English were on one of my dad's packs of cigarettes, and it said, fuck and suck. But this learning curve came alongside some pretty large challenges. I remember just walking around, getting scrapping all the time, getting, getting like M80s thrown down your shirt and stuff, and like just walking down the street, fools would come and grab half of your bread, just rawr, just. There was a bully, his name was Tom. He was the bully of the building, you know, the kids. He would beat everybody up, we'd all be scared of him. And then one time we was trick-or-treating in the building, and we knock on the door, and that motherfucker opens the door, and we're like, oh, shit, we started from running. But then I got my dad brought home this big-ass poodle, like a gigantic one, like not the little poodles, like a gigantic one. And I was walking him in the yard, and that fool Tom saw the dog and started running. So I figured out that that fool Tom, the building bully, was scared of dogs. So I started chasing him around the building with the dog and got his ass. He was scared of me after that. While he was getting accustomed to all the changes America had to offer, one thing remained consistent. He was entrenched in music. His dad was playing in bars and- I mean, I pretty much grew up in a bar, in a corner, chilling with my parents and watching my dad on stage. I, actually, I used to get mad because people would like, if people didn't appreciate it, I, I would get mad. I'd be like, because he would be pouring his heart out and fools are like drunk. You know, back then I didn't know what was going on. They were just drunk partying. Performing music in his house was a way of life. And like, I started drums in 
I like first grade. My bedroom was his studio. So I always had one eye open when he thought I was sleeping. I had one eye open, like, you know, like imagine being a little kid, seeing reel to reels going, headphones, like, like guitars and just music. And I was just like, you know, it's like, it's like a fucking, if you don't know what a studio is, you see all the shit, it's like a laboratory, you know, and you're like, what is going on? And his dad also had a drum machine called the LM2. It was the same drum machine used in the 80s to make several pop songs and most popularly used by Prince. And it was the precursor to the MPC, the drum machine behind decades of hip-hop records we all know and love. He had that, and I was making beats on that in, like, first grade, second grade. Like, that was just, like, around, you know? I can't overemphasize the impact of his father's musical journey. Not only was his father a singer and producer, he also made his money as a party DJ. This had an obvious impact on Young Lethal and provided a soundtrack for his childhood. My favorite song I would ask him for was Abracadabra. Steve Miller, Abracadabra. Because he used to do the talk box. And he used to kill the talk box. Like, he would shit on Peter Frampton. And he would hear all the popular music from George Benson, Donna Summer, I Will Survive. And even in the classics, Hotel California. And the inspiration kept coming. He was soon exposed to hip-hop. I remember a school assembly in, like, second grade. One little piece of it, somebody came out to Planet Rock and started popping. And I was like, whoa, what is this? It didn't really like stick yet. It was just like, oh, cool, that's cool. But I was always the kid that had the fucking cassette boombox. I carried that shit around with me everywhere. I had Joanne Jett fucking, I love rock and roll on that motherfucker. Jake Isles band. I had Tour de France. Yeah, that's what really got me into hip hop. When we moved to Cali, that's when I started my love affair with hip-hop. Now, by the time he made it to Los Angeles, his father had landed a gig at the Russian Tea Room that had just opened at the Beverly Center. Lethal's father was a seasoned band member and had played in a band with notable producer Dennis Bell. Together, they co-wrote a song called Midnight Interlude for Tom Brown in 1981. Midnight Interlude. Interlude. Dennis Bell went on to produce... Lottie Dottie in the show. Have you ever seen a show with fellas on the mic with one minute rhymes that don't come out right? So my first like real concert I ever went to was Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh crew with Barry B and Chill Will at Disneyland and the stage was underground and it came up out of the ground. But I remember being down below. I remember beatboxing in Dougie Fresh's face because I used to beatbox. Barry B and Chill Will were practicing down there. And one was playing a dope-ass drum beat, and the other one was scratching in some banjo shit. Holy shit. I was just like, I'm chill. I'm like 10. That was it. I was like, I love this. Oh, watch, Mom. One day, I'm going to be a star. You know, and I thought, just beatboxing. I'm going to be a beatbox star. Little did he know, he was going to be a star. A hip-hop star and a rock star like his dad. Coming up, Young Lethal takes his love for hip-hop to the floor with breakdancing to the wall with graffiti, then makes his way to the stage with help from a hip-hop veteran, Everlast. And together they take the party to the max when they make the whole world jump around. Stay tuned. DJ Cool, and I'm here to tell you about a new stupid flat podcast I'm 
on called Headspin, the classic hip-hop trivia gamecast. Headspin! Come listen as two golden era gladiators compete head-to-head to see who will be victorious in their knowledge of completely useless hip-hop trivia. Headspin! The winner will go home with cold hard cash, while the loser will be forced to spin the dreaded hip-hop wheel of consequence. Headspin premieres June 30th with new episodes every Wednesday after. Make sure to subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts and follow at Headspin Game Show to get in on the action. Headspin, the only classic hip-hop game cast. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. At this point in his life, middle school DJ Lethal and his family had escaped from Soviet-controlled Latvia in the middle of the Cold War all the way to New York City and then to Los Angeles. The sounds of underground Russian rock eventually turned into soul, pop, and now hip-hop was on the rise. With exposure to the world of entertainment from a young age and a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience backstage with Dougie Fresh, he decided he was going to be a beatbox star. Like, because I was a nerd at this point. I was wearing glasses, paisley, like shirts with paisley when paisley was in. I mean, I looked like a nerd, but I was cool as fuck, and my beatbox was on point. And I always used to have the boombox. And his hip-hop journey was just getting started. He was an avid beatboxer. Until I started bringing the fucking cardboard to the school, and we used to battle the magnet kids. For the uninitiated, he had cardboard for breakdance battles. And he wasn't just jumping into battles unprepared. I also remember taking lessons from the L.A. Breakers. Used to have a dance studio right next door to Beverly Center in Beverly and Los Seneca. And he also found a place that would cater to his b-boy ambitions. The ultimate shit ever was there used to be a store on Vine and Hollywood that used to be called For Breakers Only. And you went in there and they had all fat laces and all this dope shit. They had a cut out linoleum mat that said For Breakers Only and graffiti. And the background was brick wall. Bro, I used to roll that thing up, bring that shit out. I was the man. He had fallen into hip-hop hard and was lucky enough to be surrounded by some other kids who had similar dreams. I went to Bancroft Junior High School with Sun Doobie. Sun Doobie from the rap group Funk Doobius. Charlie Tuna. Charlie Tuna of Jurassic 5. My man Charlie Tuna rocks the house. A bunch of kids came out of that. Everybody would rap and shit, and I would be the beatbox. And I was like, that well, the white boy that can fucking beatbox. And he was about to discover a new path in hip-hop. Between his days as a beatboxer and becoming a DJ, he got into graffiti. Well, I ran with a little crew, and one was, his name was Mech, Mech One. And my other boy, his name was Sir. Their crew would tag graffiti all over L.A. And I used to tag Fate 
and rescue. F-A-T-E and R-E-S-Q. That was my tags. One day, Sir started beefing with another graffiti crew called West Coast Artists. Sir actually started crossing out WCA and they were after him. And this may seem petty to those who aren't in the tagging community, but this was a big deal. In recent months, 22 L.A. taggers have been killed and dozens more wounded in shootouts with other crews. And they were a couple years older, so they were more like, they were, you know, they were kind of scary. So one time we were at the fucking donut shop on Santa Monica and Highland, and we're just chilling there after school. RTD bus pulls up, and 20 motherfuckers jump off of the bus, and they're like, who's Mac? Who's Sir? Who's Mac? Who's Sir? Started banging off those air. Who's Mac? And we're like, oh shit, we're standing right there. We turn around, we fucking go inside the donut shop, order order a donut and sit down, and we're watching them bang on everybody, seeing who's making sure. And I'm sitting right next to them, and we're just going, holy shit, this is crazy. And then they ended up letting Sir and Mech in the WCA. Because he crossed him out so much, they were just like, fuck it, you're cool. And his boy Sir also exposed him to DJ equipment. Sir actually had turntables. So we would go racking and graffiti, and then we'd go back to his curb because he, he had, his mom had money. You know, they lived in Westwood, and he had the turntable set up and everything. Over time, he learned the craft and found his calling. But he didn't go the normal route for DJs. Instead of working parties and clubs, he saw a different lane. I wasn't really, like, ever into club DJing that much because I used to watch, like, DJP and Skate Master Tate. 50 back then sounded like he might as well be, like, a 1,000 years old. And I'd be like, damn, dude, I don't want to be 50, like, DJing clubs. I was like, man, I need to start making music. Like, And while tagging, hanging, and making music were his priority, he eventually let one important part of his life slip. High school. I got kicked out of Fairfax in the middle of 11th grade. Got sent to West Hollywood Opportunity Center. It was all, all just fucking cholos and, and bloods and crips. The K-Day truck used to pull up to the damn school. Damn stereo, Dude, we used to drink a 40 before we went to school. And I'm sure you could tell his dreams weren't contingent on him going to college. His life up to this point taught him how to hustle and develop skills. Hustle and skills that when they met opportunity were the recipe for success. So somewhere after high school, I mean, I went to Fairfax, so Delicious Vinyl was on on Melrose back then. Delicious Vinyl at the time was the record label home to Tone Low. Wow, Young MC. What comes next? Hey, bust a move. And would eventually be home to Master Ace and the far side. I met some rapper on Hollywood Boulevard. I was like, yo, let's go to Delicious Vinyl and go get a, try to get a record deal. I'll beatbox and you rap. So I literally remember like bum rushing into the office at Delicious Vinyl with this rapper and we like kicked the thing. But... Nothing came of it. But that wasn't the end of his connection with Delicious Vinyl. Somehow I met Young MC, and through him, somehow I met Terry B. And Terry B was signed to Eazy-E. I was in a music video called Murder, She Wrote. You on the scope, down on the rap, called Murder, She Wrote. I stopped working with her. I don't know, something happened. And then a couple months later, Terry B called me up. He's like, yo, my boyfriend is this guy Everlast. He signed her Ice T and Rhyme Syndicate, and he's going on tour. And he, he wants to hear you beatbox. I was like, okay, dope. So he goes to meet Everlast. As soon as we smoked the dude, I beatboxed a little bit, and it was it. Probably in Everlast's head, he probably was like, eh, this kid's young, and I could bully him around and shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and with this gig in the bag, he was set to go on tour with Ice-T and Rhyme Syndicate. And Ice-T at this time was a really big deal. 
Well, one of my guests today is the popular rap star Ice T. You take a high C E, a capital T. You get the best rap in the way ever be. I was just stoked to go on tour with Ice T, and then uh, you know we went. Ice T used to have these meetings on Hollywood Boulevard. Africa Islam would be up in there, dude, and I was I was jacking Africa. I, dude, I was wearing I was wearing Africa patches, bro, like walking down La Cienega Zulu Nation, dude. And once they got on the road, tour life had its perks. I'd say it was a month, maybe a little less, but we were all on one bus, like five, six groups. And Ice T had Darlene at the time. And it came time to pick a bunk. I was like, I'm picking that bottom bunk so I can look up Darlene's skirt. <laughs> she was fine, boy. Remember that? He was already used to seeing show business through his dad, but this was another level. They toured the states and they went overseas. Amsterdam, in particular, blew his mind. What? Weed? Bitches? What? Like, this is life. Like, I mean, it's like the best field trip you can ever fucking have for a kid. I mean, imagine that, dude. That's pff, top that. <laughs> but this is where he learned a hard lesson at a young age. Remember, at this point, he was just barely out of high school. We were in Hanover, Germany, and we stopped at a truck stop. Everybody was sleeping. And this is like my first tour, so I wasn't really like knowing what's up. And I went to take a shit, and I fucking come out, and the bus is gone, bro. And I'm like, what? I'm in a fucking pair of Nike shorts, a little T-shirt, like shoes, no socks. And the bus is gone. And I'm like, what the fuck? No cell phones. I didn't even have anything on me to even call the, even a dollar to even use the pay phone. I ended up fucking sitting at that truck stop, bro, for like seven hours. I ran down the freeway, tried to see if they pulled over. Nope. Somehow I got a hold of my, my mom or dad. They got a hold of the tour manager, and they were already four or five hours up up to Frankfurt. And uh, Everlast told me the story later. He woke up, and he was chilling for about an hour. And then he was like, yo, anybody seen Lee? And then they finally realized that fucking I was left at the truck stop. I sat at that bus stop and drank beers with some old German man. He was buying me beers. We didn't even speak English. And then the cops came. And they gave me 150 marks, it was like $100. And they took me on the Autobahn to catch the last tram, to take a last train to Frankfurt. I missed the show. Evil E filled in for me on that show. But he eventually closed out the tour, and with the successful tour under his belt, he accomplished something special. I got $1,000 for the tour with Ice-T in 1988. And that was like a million dollars to me at that time. My best friend's mom took me to cash the check in her green Mustang. That is the day I turned professional. World meet DJ Lethal. He was on his way to a career in hip hop that was only a dream months prior to this. Actually, let's rewind to before the tour with Ice-T and Rhyme Syndicate when he had the opportunity to use his DJ skills for Everlast album. I got a scratch on two of the tracks, maybe the single, I got the knack. And the rhythm. So I used that UTFO song, Live and Lethal. At the end of the record, it goes, UTFO is getting live and lethal. Everlast used to live with Divine Styler. Divine Styler was another MC signed to Ice-T's Rhyme Syndicate label. Me, Divine Styler, the phonograph child. And I used to bring my reel-to-reel over there and... 
we used to make beats and shit. And hanging with Everlasting Divine Styler, Lethal witnessed as the label tried to fit Everlast into a mold that he wasn't necessarily made to fit. Warner Brothers tried to make Everlast wear suits. They bought us suits for the video. We went, we got Armani suits. We thought we were balling. But in all actuality, when you look back, you could tell Vanilla Ice blew up and they was trying to make us look all fucking GQ'd out, you know? You know what I mean? That didn't work, so... Now let's fast forward to after the Rhyme Syndicate tour. The image of white guys in suits might have seemed like a winner because of the Vanilla Ice fame, but it wasn't working for Everlasting DJ Lethal. After that tour, we came home and there was a few years of just stealing and robbing fucking labels and going in and stealing CDs. Steven Rifkin used to manage Everlast. Steve Rifkin, the founder of Loud Records, which became home to the Alcoholics, Mob Deep, and the Wu-Tang Clan. And he had an office. He actually, I think he took over that Delicious Vinyl office. He also had a promotion company, so that the whole fucking room was full of CDs. And we had a homie down the street that worked at Aaron's Records right there on Melrose, and he would buy CDs for $5 a CD. So we used to make fake meetings. Everlast would call up Steve and do fake meetings. And I would sit in the fucking outside of the room and just fucking load up backpacks of CDs. And that's how we survived for like two years. Everlast, after his solo thing, he's, we did another solo thing, but it was Everlast and the House of Pain. And it was more of like a blues rock band. But this didn't take off. And then Danny Boy came into the picture and because Eric knew Danny from Taft High School and Danny Boy had these good ideas and the logos and how to mash up or, you know, let's do this Irish shit with the fucking hip hop. And this was the formation of the House of Pain we know today. They were a white rap group, but they weren't the Beastie Boys, third base, nor a replica of Vanilla Ice. Coming up, Lethal and Everlast come together with Danny Boy to create the House of Pain album. And DJ Muggs of Cypress Hill helps them create a smash single, Jump Around. But their biggest hit gets hijacked and almost railroads their success. Stay tuned. Listen, nobody cares when the War of 1812 was fought or how many states there are in the U.S. We all know that there are 52, I think. What we really care about is which famous gangster rapper actually started as a backup dancer or how many ladies per capita love Cool James. This is Magic Most, host of the new classic hip-hop gamecast, Headspin, brought to you by Stupid Fly. Our first show launches on Wednesday, June 30th, but you can subscribe today. Headspin, the world's first and greatest golden era hip-hop gamecast. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping 
dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. DJ Lethal's road to hip-hop greatness brought him from Latvia to L.A. and from tagging walls to packing concert halls all around the world. But despite the tour with Ice-T and Rhyme Syndicate, Lethal and Everlast found themselves back at the drawing board with Everlast's friend Danny Boy. Together, they formed a rowdy, unique hip-hop group called House of Pain. They had found their lane and were ready to go. House of Pain let a lot of, like, kids that couldn't, didn't know where to fit in. They were getting called Vanilla Ice and Beastie Boy. And then here comes these dudes that just want to fight and drink and punch you in the face. And they could really rep that shit like, yo, this is our shit. And Lethal knew that he was going to have a vital role in the group. He set out to create tracks for the House of Pain album. I just knew that... I had to make dope beats. Everlast had rhymes. Danny Boy had the, the vision. I was going around the valley to record stores with a fucking shopping cart, switching price tags, because nobody had money. I didn't have money back then to buy $20 records, $10 records, $25, you know? I was switching fucking price tags in the stores, you know, just getting by for whatever, and I would literally fucking walk down Ventura with a shopping cart and... I would pretend to take my dog on a walk, but I would take my dog on a walk and smoke weed and then go make beats in the garage. Crate digging one-on-one. It's like you want to find shit that nobody else used. Like, literally, you were digging for fucking gold. You find that one loop that nobody uses, you, you could that make you a million dollars. So those first beats I ever made went on the House of Pain record. At the same time, there was a little-known rap group making waves in Los Angeles called Cypress Hill. And turns out, their producer, DJ Muggs, was close by. Muggs was hooking up with my girl's cousin. So Muggs would come over to the crib and be like, yo, you want to hear some shit? And it was, he would throw the cassette in, and it was like pigs. fucking all the first Cypress Hill album shit. And I was like, yo, holy shit. God damn, that's what I want to do. So, you know, I pretty much bit Muggs' style, kind of, you know? And among the tracks he created for House of Pain were the songs House of the Rising Sun. One for the road. Mickey Mouse. You know he's in the house. And their single Shamrocks and Shenanigans. House of Pain was working on what will become their self-titled album using Lethal's production and tracks from the guy who inspired the sound, DJ Muggs. Little did they know, Muggs was about to contribute a monster, the song that will write their names in the book of hip-hop forever. I just remember going to Muggs' house, like, once. And that was the first beat he played, Jump Around. We both looked at each other like, what? I was like, yeah, yeah, fuck, yeah, that's just dope, whatever. And he was like, yeah, that's dope. And then I think he wrote it on the spot. And I remember we used to love that Jamalski song. Jump, spread out, do it, da, da, da. It kind of came from that kind of, that flow, that Jamalski flow, fucking jump, spread out. Jump around. That's why it even has a little bit of accent on it. It's like some Jamaican chanting shit, you know what I'm saying? Jump
So House of Pain is sitting on an album and a guaranteed smash hit song. All they needed now was a label who would take a chance on them. Well, Muggs and Cypress Hill were signed to Rough House, Columbia, Joe the Butcher, right? Muggs sent Joe the Butcher to jump around. And then Joe the Butcher wanted to sign us to Rough House, but he offered 75 grand. And we were like, Psh, get the fuck out of here. What a whack deal. I think we went to New York or something. And out there's a guy named Albie who worked at Tommy Boy. And Monica Lynch actually flew out to LA and they offered us 150. Tommy Boy was home of legendary acts like De La Soul, Queen Latifah, and Naughty by Nature. We were at some, what's that, Mondrian Hotel and like the rooftop or some shit. Or, and that's where we, like, I remember having a dinner and that's when we signed the deal. So then what happened was Joe. Joe the Butcher Nicolo, the guy at Rough House Records who initially offered them a deal after hearing Jump Around. Played the record for fucking Jermaine Dupree, who then gave it to Criss Cross. And they beat us to the punch with our own shit. That's why at the end of Jump Around, you hear Everlast go, yo, this is dedicated to Joe the Biter instead of the Butcher. Get off the Bozak, punk. It was like, what the fuck? But our Jump Around drop maybe a week after Jump Jump. Dropped. And despite being hijacked by Joe the Butcher, when Jump Around debuted, it took off. But back then, they didn't have the internet, so they couldn't see how people were receiving the song. That's where the live shows came into play, and they were in for a pleasant surprise. We did a West Coast promo run, and we played like three shitty bars along the West Coast, and we got to Frisco. And in Frisco, we had a homie that had uh, Think Skateboards. We played like out of his window at a block party in Frisco, and then... Um, we got invited to a black sheep show. And for some reason, Be Real was there too. And at this point, Black Sheep was buzzing with their hit song, The Choice Is Yours. And I guess somehow, Everlasting Be Real and me jumped on stage and they threw on fucking Jump Around after that song. jump around everlasting b-roll came out murder it and then boom from there everything just went crazy after that we did a bunch of east coast shows but like the 10 people i'm talking about van tour tommy boy promo van tour anyone that really was like holy shit i have a career is when it was in mrs doubtfire also responding to a noise ordinance violation believe me i'm going to respond myself i'm awfully sorry about this i'll get back you ate my begonias! Mrs. Doubtfire. They found themselves on tour doing shows ranging from small venues to large concert halls, and they soon got the opportunity to open up for the Beastie Boys at the Irvine Amphitheater. And we had a few shows with the Beastie Boys lined up. And this was our first big hometown show. Dream fucking gig. Irvine Amphitheater sold out. We're ready to go on stage. And our parents were trying to get in. So we're on the side of the stage. There was a gate to get backstage. 
And me and Eric and Dan are like trying to get our parents in and go, no, no, they're they're with us. That's our parents. Let them in. Let them in. And Beastie Boys tour manager walks up to Eric and he's all, yo, get on fucking stage right now. And Eric goes, yo, man, I'm trying to get my moms in right now. He's And the stage manager for Beastie Boys goes, yo, fuck your moms and get on stage right now. And Everlast gave him one of these, you know, like a double fist chest pound, like a boom. Now we went on stage and we murdered it. Jump, jump, everybody jump. They killed the Beastie Boys show in LA and went on to the rest of the dates, but it quickly became evident that even though the Beastie Boys were hype and brought the party, House of Pain took that party to a very wild place. We had a few shows and like Danny Boy was out buying AK-47s and fucking running. We was wild, bro. We was too wild for the Beastie Boys. You know what I mean? They were like, holy shit, Danny's running around with AKs. We got fucking drinking 40s, throwing them fucking everywhere, you know. And so these motherfuckers made us drive all the way to Seattle. Like, bro, like a 15-hour drive. And then we pull up to the hotel, we see, I think it was Mike D. We already found out like two hours before we got there that we're off of the tour. So we were like, yo, what's, what's up, dude? And he was like, oh, I don't know, man. Like, Yeah, dude, we, we got fucking kicked off a Beastie Boy tour for being too wild. Uh, the House of Pain album had been released in the summer of 1992, hitting the charts in five countries and achieving platinum status, selling over a million copies. This was an accomplishment that surpassed everyone's expectations and fulfilled the dream of his father dating all the way back to escaping Soviet-controlled Latvia. And Lethal was able to work with his idol, his father, while producing records. So after we did the first House Pain album, Sun Doobie and, and Funk Doobies, you know, Soul Assassins. And uh, I remember I had made the beat the funkiest. Bow Wow Wow. Yeah, that was my dad. He was I sampled him on the talk box. that womp 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 that's my dad I always used to make beats with him I got him his own records and his gold platinums and when the first jump around platinums came in and the golds oh he was cruising around with them shits in the car like what I got one that's melted cause he left it in the car <laughs> and it was validating to see so much hard work pay off House of Pain would go on to record two more studio albums and broke up in 1996 Danny Boy went to start an art company Everlast went on to his solo career, and DJ Lethal, well... House of Pain was over, and I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I can't well, be a fucking plumber now? After going through a house, like, that big's a biggest success? House of Pain did one final tour in 96 in Florida. The opening band goes on, and I'm like, what is this? And this band was a group of Florida natives who called themselves Limp Biscuit. And they're doing a fucking metal cover of Straight Up by Paula Abdul. And Everlast is like, yo, what is this garbage, yo? What is this, yo? And I'm like, well, whatever, this shit's kind of dumb. I'm like, what's up? And so I kept, you know, watching. And before the show, they were just cool, and they were just rednecks from Jacksonville. And we just became friends. And then after the show, I was just like, damn, these dudes are pretty dope. Yo, y'all should come out to L.A. because I got a studio at the crib. And I'll produce some demos for you, and let's go get a record deal. And those guys on the way coming from Florida to my house, the driver fell asleep and flipped the van, and the fucking, they almost all died. 
So like four days later, I'm like, where are these guys supposed to be here? I'm getting renting fucking drums. I got shit set up. I'm like, where the fuck are these guys? Now they show up to my house all in fucking casts and fucking bloody stitches, picking glass out of their fucking knees. Luckily, the guys from Limp Biscuit were all alive and accounted for. They went on to record with Lethal. We were recording uh, at Indigo Ranch. There was like, oh, yo, you might as well just join the band. I was like, yeah. And with DJ Lethal installed as their missing piece, Limp Biscuit showed up and the rest was history. As we all know, Limp Biscuit went on to become incredibly successful, giving Lethal's career a second win and carrying his legacy onto the next generation of hip hop fans and rock fans alike. Again, it's hard to imagine a kid born on the other side of the world whose parents had overcome communist oppression, immigration, and poverty was able to become a successful musician in a new art form. Then when it all came to an end, he did it again. These days, DJ Lethal is still making tracks at his compound in Los Angeles, and his legacy plays on. Fresh Era is a Stupid Fly production, written and edited by me, Craig Smith, and made great by the phenomenal DJ Cheap Shot. Chris Barnett is the smart, confident version of the man behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz. Sean Berman is our mix engineer. Art designed by Michael Bonanno. Music by The Mad Club. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, CastBox, or wherever you listen to the show. And be sure to tune in to the next episode of Fresh Era. <laughs>